0: Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser-known true crime stories. Welcome back, all. I hope you are all doing well. I'm really not complaining. It's summertime. It's like my jam. Uh, Thank you all for coming back to listen to my episodes. You are all so amazing. There's nothing really new to report here in Anywhere USA, so I hope everything is going amazing where you guys are. Um, I always want to continue to thank you all you guys you know how much I love you so thank you thank you thank you you're far too kind thank you thank you thank you this is your shout out time thank you dad (laughs) haha you thought I was going to start with the city thank you dad for always being my biggest cheerleader Rocky wasn't shit without Mickey and the same can be said about you Welcome back, Anchorage, Fairbanks, Juneau, Wasilla, and Sitka, Alaska. So good to see you, Platt, Mitchell, Aberdeen, Yankton, and Sioux Falls, South Dakota. How goes it, Caribou, Scarborough, Sanford, Freeport, and Ellsworth, Maine? Aloha, Kailua, Kona, Honolulu, Waikiki, Kailua, and Hilo, greetings and salutations east fairfield burlington perkinsville the village of middlebury and south burlington vermont what it do birmingham tony montgomery phil campbell and mobile alabama what's up winfield branchland martinsburg charleston morgantown and st albans west virginia Always a pleasure, Ontario, British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Newfoundland, Manitoba, Quebec, and Nova Scotia, Canada. So good to see you again, Auckland, Wellington, Bay of Plenty, and Canterbury, New Zealand. Good day, Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania, Southern, and Western Australia. How are you, Metro Manila? Calisbarone and Central Luzon, Philippines, Como esta, San Juan, Bayamon, Carolina, Ponce, Puerto Rico. Wonderful to see you, Valletta, <clears throat> S- Sliema, Saint Julian's and Zabar, Malta. Always great to welcome you back. Kerala, Madhya Pradesh, Delhi, Karnataka, and Assam, India. I hope you're all well in Namibia. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the likes, shares, and subscribes. Don't forget to join the What Had Happened Facebook group, all the other socials I'm so bad at managing right now. because I'm dealing with my own shit. Whatever. Also, don't forget there is absolutely an email address, so feel free to drop me a line or two. Long-time listener, super fan, first-time emailer. Hey, Kimberly, I got a case I want you to discuss. Um... Just let me know. All of the links can be found in the description box, along with my references per the usual. So last episode, I discussed Joseph Callinger and how a mentally, super mentally disturbed man with a horrific history of abuse became a much bigger monster raping a burglar, burglar, I can read. And I'm not going to record this again. This is literally like take four. Burglarizing and murdering at the behest of the voices in his head. Who? This episode, I will be telling you what had happened in 1952 when the most wealthy African-American woman in a small Florida town killed her abuser, the town's prominent doctor and senator. Ruby Myrtle Jackson was born August 31st, 1909 to Gertrude and William Jackson in Zuber, Florida. Ruby was her parents' second of six children and the couple's first daughter. The Jackson children ended up attending a segregated school. As Ruby continued to excel in her studies, her parents decided to send her to the Friesenden Acad- Academy, which was a private school for African Americans. <coughs> and actually, this school was taking in students from the Caribbean and Africa as well, so it was renowned. Um, and it was established in 1868 by a group of freedmen. While at school, many found Ruby's quiet yet determined ways as off-putting. Some would call her conceited, but Ruby was there to learn and make something more of her life than what life had to offer the average African American at the time, especially in the South. While in attendance, Ruby studied nursing for two years, having always wanted to help others and... um. I want to say she said something along the lines of like heal the wounded or something like that. Um, So let's backtrack for a second. A lot of the content that I got comes from two separate documentaries. The first would be you belong to me, sex, rape and sex, race and murder in the South. And that link is a YouTube video. uh, it's, nearly two hours long that is in the description box as well as season two episode two of a crime to remember the shot doctor with the original air date of November 18th 2014 and loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of newspaper articles that were uh, written by Zora Neale Hurston, who was a renowned author, anthropologist, and filmmaker. Uh, So, that's where most of my references, that's where the bulk of my references came from. So, as I was saying, some some of her class, one of her classmates said that, you know, some of them thought that she was conceited, but, like, Ruby, seriously, as her sister would say... ...was sent there to learn and make something more of her life. Now, again, this was the early 1900s. So, we are now in the the Jim Crow era. So, after the two years of nursing, what happened was she found that she actually had an amazing head for numbers and her niche would end up becoming bookkeeping ever ambitious because that's a great word to describe her but i feel like in some of these retellings of her story the word ambition was used as a negative almost because she was a woman and she was a woman of color at the turn of the 20th century. 40, who was born 40 years post-slavery. Uh, so, like, you know what I mean? There was a lot of, like, who is this uppity heifer, but okay. Um, Ruby aspired to be more than just a simple homemaker living a watered-down existence. At the age of 19... Ruby would end up marrying a man who would ensure that she would have the best life she could offer. Although she had been dating a young man who was closer to her age, she'd weighed her options after meeting Sam McCollum. Seeing clearly that Sam was more aligned with herself and her ambitions, Ruby married Sam McCollum Sr., a man who was eight years older than she, in 1929. Soon after their nuptials, the couple moved to Nyack, New York, which there was a great migration at that time of African-Americans from the South moving up north for better opportunities and hopefully a little bit better treatment. During this time, the couple welcomed their first child, a son that they would name Sam Jr. on December 3rd, 1933. After the birth of Sam Jr., the McCollum trio decided to move to Fort Myers, Florida, where Sam's brother Buck lived and thrived as a life insurance agent. While the couple did well in life insurance, Sam, too, was also extremely successful as a tobacco farmer, proprietor of the jukeboxes that went into the juke point uh juke joints and operator of an illegal gambling business known as bolita where players would place bets on the numbers drawn from a bag and then you know like at the end of the night you know it's kind of like bingo or i don't know something like bingo it feels like bingo but it was illegal Uh, While Sam was successful in running these multiple businesses, Ruby made for the perfect partner who not only did the bookkeeping effortlessly, but also saved enough for the couple to amass a small fortune. While growing their fortune and reputation among the community, they also grew their family. Daughter Kay having been born on July 22, 1941, followed by another daughter named Sonia, who was born on October 6, 1945. It was also in 1945 that Live Oak would get a new physician who practiced medicine in a radical way. Dr Clifford Leroy Adams was a magician of short of sorts when he began practicing medicine in the sleepy hamlet of Live Oak after studying pharmacy for 6 months and then moving on to medicine which he may or may not have done in some not so honest ways i.e forged some letters to get into schools and things of that nature However, that's just the kind of guy that he was. With life-saving penicillin becoming available March of 1945, Dr. Adams became known as the shot doctor. Antibiotics weren't all he was known for in this very segregated community. Dr. Adams looked after one and all, not only making house calls to both white and black patients, but also operating a se- A segregated medical practice that saw both black and white patients under the same roof, albeit separate waiting areas and separate um, examining rooms. Aware of the financial difficulties many had, both black and white, within the community, um, he was like one of those doctors who was like, you know what, you pay me when you can. Now let me give you a quick little physical description. Good doctor was a robust man. He stood approximately six foot two and he weighed an estimated 245 to 300 pounds. So he was a big guy. Now, Ruby McCollum, on the other hand, was five foot two and at her most pregnant she weighed 145 pounds. So I just needed to throw that in there because I don't think I threw his description in there. But nonetheless, he was one of those, you know, you pay me when you got it. And also a plate of fried chicken would get you a long way with the good doctor. Like if you had some fine victuals available, you very well could barter your way into not having to pay cash um and make everything clean with the doctor. So, although he was a healer, Dr. Adams was also extremely power-driven and ambition, ambitious, with his sights set on acquiring not only wealth, but a high political seat. He also had seedy ways to make money, such as insurance fraud. Which, in 1949, he would be busted for the first time for uh, basically defrauding the government. He made insurance claims asserting that he had taken care of VA patients and did not and Nonetheless, the community rallied around him because he was such a charismatic and effervescent character in the community that they just couldn't see him doing that and he ended up being acquitted of those charges. Now, while the McCollums were becoming the wealthiest family in Live Oak, The only way for them to operate and flourish in their segregated Jim Crow community was to pay the sheriff and other important white town officials, which soon would also include paying the good doctor, basically becoming a partner with the doctor. Although he'd become acquainted with the McCollums three months prior to the birth of their daughter, Sonia. He became the family doctor in 1946 after Ruby became ill. Although Dr. Adams was taking payments from the McCollum's Bolita operations and was the family physician, he also became a fixture around the McCollum home, so much so that Sam and Dr. Adams would often hunt together as well as share Ruby's homemade cooked dinners at the couple's home. After years of grooming and praying on Ruby, Dr. Adams waited for an opportune time when Sam was out of town in 1948 to begin abusing Ruby. While some like to recount this as a consensual relationship, it absolutely was not the doctor began controlling ruby by shooting her up with drugs that she would later describe as one shot that would make her sick and another that would make her feel better unbeknownst to ruby the good doctor was most likely controlling her with heroin to subdue her and cocaine to stimulate her it was said that due to this continual administration of drugs that Ruby began to unravel mentally. Dr. Adams took full control over Ruby, beating her when she would protest and abusing her continually. Ruby was seen at the doctor's office daily and it wasn't uncommon as well for community members to see Dr. Adams strolling out of the McCollum's two-story yellow stucco home in the morning hours. Also, he was a married man with a family. There's that as well. Um, So, while Sam was able to turn a, bl- a blind eye for the first two years of Dr. Adams's abuse of Ruby, which was... Something that was inherent at that time. Um, a lot of people don't like to talk about it, but there were unwritten rules that still applied, especially in the Jim Crow South, where you had white men who committed sexual acts and offenses upon African American women and everybody just turned a blind eye and boys will be boys and it it is what it is you're not a real man until you split dark coal, as the father figure said to Billy Bob Thornton in um Monsters Ball that kind of mentality so Sam was able to turn the blind eye until it became a slap in his face in 1951 when Ruby gave birth to an undeniably half-white daughter that they would name Loretta. To add insult to injury, Dr. Adams had just become elected to the Florida State Senate and one of their top priorities was to crack down on illegal gambling. With the walls beginning to crash around Ruby and her mental health, Dr. Adams' sexual abuse as well as the drug dependence he induced caused Ruby to be committed multiple times at Brewster Hospital in Jacksonville, Florida. The first time she was committed was after she asked him to perform a hysterectomy on her, so that she could no longer become pregnant, knowing the the shame of having a child that was not her husband's and was visibly not the product of their marriage, and that she that Loretta little Loretta looked just she was a spitting image of this doctor. It was just, it was a lot for her, and he said no, and he had her ass committed. So, you know, she stayed the first time for like 12 days or something like that, and then she came back home, and she was fine for a couple of days, but shortly thereafter, she would end up coming right back to the doctor's office asking for shots because she had been going through withdrawal and had such a huge dependency on these drugs that he hadn't told her what they were, but you know, sometimes he said she needed that to calm her down and to put her in her place. Each commitment, like I said, lasted less than two weeks at a time. Unfortunately, due to her addiction, as I also said, she would return to the doctor for the shots to keep her well. Aside from suffering from crippling anxiety There had been murmurings of Sam carrying on an extramarital relationship with a pretty school teacher. When Ruby, like, heard this, she kind of, like, swatted it, you know, off a little bit here and there. But, like, you could tell that Sam also was tired of this arrangement with dr adams and how he had been carrying on with ruby and it was kind of like she had to hold her tongue and sam was absolutely holding his as well these people were so wealthy and yet they stood the chance of losing everything if they said the wrong thing or made the wrong move because while they had all of this wealth, they were still African Americans in Jim Crow South. So they didn't really have nearly as much power over their own, you know, lives and their money and everything else. So, what ends up happening is... It's horrible. Sam is pissed and he ends up telling Ruby essentially that he's sick and tired of Dr. Adams and the relationship that he has established with Ruby because of Loretta being, you know, their child. He tells her that if she ever bore another one of the doctor's children, he'd kill her. In early summer 1952, Ruby's worst fear came true. After coming home from her third admittance to Brewster Hospital, Dr. Adams once again got Ruby pregnant. Knowing the consequences she'd face at the hands of Sam if she were to keep this second pregnancy by Dr. Adams, Ruby pleaded with the doctor to discreetly perform an abortion. Dr. Adams roundly rejected the request, telling Ruby that he would kill her if she killed his child. Ruby was trapped from both angles. If she kept this unwanted pregnancy her husband would kill her if she terminated this pregnancy her unborn child's father would kill her it was the first week of august 1952 when ruby had finally had her fill a bill from dr adams's office had arrived at the McCollum home Ruby, having studied to be a nurse for two years, knew exactly what a DNC was. However, she hadn't had one, as Dr. Adams had refused steadfastly to terminate their pregnancy. The amount was $116, and the note on the bottom in the doctor's familiar pen read, quote, Sam, you keep this goddamn woman out of my office, she's gone crazy as a bat. Having endured years of sexual abuse, an unwanted drug addiction, mental upheaval, and two pregnancies at the hands of her rapist and abuser, Ruby had finally had enough. Sunday, August 3, 1952 was like any other Sunday in Sewanee County and Live Oak, Florida. Blacks and whites both attended their respective churches for praise and worship, as Dr. Adams saw patients at his practice. That morning, Sam and daughter Kay went to church, while Ruby stayed home with daughters Sonia and Loretta. As the streets of Live Oak became deserted that morning, Ruby dressed in a beautiful yellow dress, fussed with her hair, and loaded her daughter's into her two-toned Chrysler New Yorker. After parking in front of Dr. Adams's medical practice, Ruby paced nervously for a few moments before leaving her girls to attend to business with Dr. Adams. Entering through the colored entrance, the women in the waiting room were invisible to Ruby, who went straight for the doctor's office. Unhappy to see Ruby, Dr Adams inquired why she was in his office although the office door was closed ruby and dr adams's voices carried the two began arguing over the doctor's bill ruby had intercepted after ruby caught him lying about not having his bookkeeping records on hand and insisting she'd only pay $100 citing the other party could pay the remainder. Dr. Adams rebuffed Ruby, telling her he'd had enough of her. It was in this moment that Ruby pulled a thirty-eight Smith & Wesson from her tan handbag and proceeded to shoot the doctor, with two of the four rounds fired into his body, hitting him in the back. After collecting herself, Ruby calmly walked out of the doctor's office and drove herself and her daughters home. With the Live Oak Police Department located one block away from the doctor's office, police responded immediately. Witnesses on the scene, including the three African-American women in the doctor's office, as well as pedestrians, all described Dr. Adams' shooter as being a five-foot-tall roughly 145-pound African-American woman who was wearing a beautiful yellow dress with tan shoes, matching leather handbag, driving a two-toned Chrysler with two small girls in tow. While the women denied knowing the shooter, the police immediately knew who their suspect was. Simultaneously, as police were driving to the McCollum home to see Ruby, word was spreading throughout the church pews that the town's newly elected senator and favorite doctor had been shot to death by no other than Ruby McCollum, the town's most affluent and wealthy African American woman. When the police arrived at the McCollums, Ruby was described as wearing a completely different outfit. When she welcomed the officers into her home, she was in the process of fixing a bottle for her one-year-old daughter, Loretta. Officers were aghast as they searched for her purse and found it contained $1,800 uh, in $100 bills. The average annual income at the time was $2,000. And she literally had it like right there in her purse, which added further insult to injury to these white officers in this palatial home that is owned by this mega-rich black person. I'm sure it kind of cut a little bit at the time, unfortunately. After handing over the 38 she used, she told officers she didn't know if what she did was right or if it was wrong. Now, typically, Ruby would have been kept at the Sewanee County Jail. However, racial tensions that would absolutely overtake the county and town would put Ruby in harm's way. It had been eight and a half years since 15-year-old Willie Howard of Live Oak had been abducted, then drowned in the Sewanee River. And and by that, I mean he He was given the option of shooting a body part off or jumping into the Sewanee River, and he jumped and subsequently drowned. And this was considered a lynching uh, for giving all of his coworkers at the local dime store Christmas cards, including a white coworker named Cynthia Goff, followed by a New Year's Day letter where he professed his affection for her. She was appalled. A mob of people, which included her father, rallied this young man up at gunpoint, as well as his father, and this is what happened. So, knowing the hellfire that would ascend upon Live Oak by way of Yankee press junkets, the officers opted to transport Ruby an hour away to the state penitentiary in Rayford, Florida. When Sam was discreetly told during church what Ruby had done, he, along with oldest daughter Kay, quickly reclaimed Sonia and Loretta. Knowing that there could potentially be a lynch mob coming after he and his family, Sam hurriedly packed approximately $85,000 in cash and drove to his in-law's home in Zuber, Florida. The following day, while the McCullum children were safe and in the care of Ruby's family, Sam died of a heart attack. It's been reported two separate ways one stated that he took all of his heart medication because he did have a history of a bad heart as a way of taking himself out of this entire hellfire that was going to come down on Ruby. And also that he just, you know, after... Having said heart condition and running like hell, uh, he just dropped dead. So, you know, there's some conspiracy theorists who will say some other shit. I am not going to feed into that. What we do know is that the man died of a heart attack, be it suspicious or not. Now, Ruby was not only a widow and separated from her children. She was pregnant again by her rapist and fighting for her life in the court of law. One day, Ruby's lawyer arrived at Rayford to visit her. When he was led to her cell, she was discovered lying in a pool of blood. It was then that as Ruby lay miscarrying her pregnancy that she confided in her African-American attorney, Ralford McGriff, that Dr. Adams was the father of her miscarried child as well as her daughter, Loretta. After detailing the years of abuse she'd been dealt at the hands of Dr. Adams, Relford McGriff knew he was going to need to enlist the help of white attorneys if he was going to stand a chance at saving Ruby from death by the electric chair. He also knew that because Dr. Adams was a senator and a prominent member of Live Oak, there was no chance in hell that that angry the those 12 angry men were going to listen to him bringing this trial you know defending her as her attorney so he took a back seat got in touch with state uh with uh attorney Frank Cannon who was a district attorney from Jacksonville. And once he was brought in to be Ruby's lead attorney, they told him everything. The state's attorney, Keith Black, represented the prosecution with Florida's Third Circuit Court Judge Hal Adams, who was no familial relation to the deceased. However, he was... His honor was an honorary pallbearer at Dr. Adams's funeral. I don't know if that means he was like an alternate, like an alternate juror. Like, I have questions now. But, okay, that's a conflict of interest for sure. So, the sensationalism of the case made worldwide news. As I said before, Famed African-American author, anthropologist, and filmmaker Zora Neale Hurston was sent on assignment for from the African-American newspaper, The Pittsburgh Courier, to cover the trial. While in Florida, Ms. Hurston was denied the ability to interview Ruby McCollum. And there was like a gag order put on the press. No, everybody was denied to get in. Um, So what she ended up doing was pulling the back door and essentially calling in this white author who I don't have him in the script because I didn't like how he flip flopped on Ruby. But I should really just you know what? I can Google this for you guys real quick, I guess, you know, like, do you really care? I think you care you do. So let's look this up real quick. Um, so this was like a backdoor situation and, um, where is it at? She ended up calling this guy, this author in and the author's name, I'm getting to it, was... Holy crap, that's a lot of information. Um, hold on, I'm getting to it. Anyways, um, his name was William Bradford Huey. And William Bradford Huey would end up writing a book about Ruby, and then trying to turn that book into a film as well. So let's get back to the script, because screw that. Anywho, so zora neale hurston has been denied all of the press have been denied availability or the ability to interview her but she was able to sit in the balcony of the courtroom to report the details of the state of florida versus ruby McCollum. the jury was comprised of 12 white men they scoffed as ruby attempted but was consistently and constantly overruled from testifying they'd already had their minds made up most of them when the jurors took a field trip to the doctor's office which was located across the street from the courthouse the judge did not attend While Ruby was able to testify that the doctor first sexually abused her in 1948 in her home while Sam was out of town and that Loretta was Dr. Adams' daughter, the judge would not allow jurors to look up into the balcony to see the toddler being held up for all to see by a family member and objected 38 times as Frank Cannon continually tried to build his case of mitigating circumstances that led up to the murder of Dr. Adams. On December twentieth, 1952, Ruby McCollum was found guilty of the first-degree murder of Dr. Clifford Leroy Adams and given the sentence of death by electric chair. A year and a half later, on July twentieth, 1954, Ruby's counsel successfully had her conviction and death sentence overturned on a technicality due to the lack of Judge Adams's presence during the jury examination of the crime scene, as well as violating Ruby's civil rights by not allowing her to be present during the crime scene visit. During this time, it was abundantly clear that Ruby's physical and mental health had both taken a nosedive. Once a healthy, 145 pounds ruby was now a frail 87 pounds because she refused to eat anything other than food brought in by her brother as she feared she was being poisoned in her food she also feared poisonous gases were being pumped into her cell as well as attacks from others after having ruby examined by multiple doctors prior to her second trial and finding her unfit Frank Cannon entered an insanity plea. State Attorney Randall Slaughter agreed with Frank Cannon and accepted Ruby's plea of insanity, where then Judge Adams sentenced Ruby to be remanded at the Florida State Hospital for mental patients located in Chattahoochee, Florida. Roughly every day for the next 20 years, Ruby would be treated with doses of the antipsychotic drug Thorazine, as well as undergoing electroshock therapy. By 1974, it had been three years since Florida had passed the Baker Act, which essentially states that anyone who is involuntarily institutionalized, to be re-evaluated, and if they've been found to be of no harm to themselves or others to be allowed to be released to their family. So quietly, without consulting Ruby, without asking for any fees, Frank Cannon filed for Ruby's release from the Florida State Hospital under the Baker Act. After sitting before a board and stating that she wished to go home, Ruby was finally released and moved into a rest home in Silver Springs. On May 23, 1992, at the age of 82, Ruby died of a stroke in a different facility and was buried next to her brother in Live Oak, Florida. So what had happened is this. A lot of shit happened, actually. So, for one, I cannot blame her for being ambitious. The people that blamed her for being ambitious were the people who lacked ambition. And they were the people who couldn't dream of amassing the wealth that she and her husband had amassed um they were just pure haters period some of us have the 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 stuff to make shit happen others of us don't some of us can make shit happen others can't and she was a rare she and her husband were a rarity at the time now you would find pockets of influential affluent african americans at this time in history sprinkled throughout the united states um she just happened to be one of those people who had An unfortunate demise. And actually, historically speaking, you could say that there are quite a few that had unfortunate demises, be it the loss of their property or in this case, sexual abuse, murder, um, rape, all of that, you know, rolled up into her losing her livelihood, her a relationship with her children, all of that. So one thing that really stood out in You Belong to Me, sex, race, and murder in the South, as well as A Crime to Remember, is there were discussions about how, although this was the Jim Crow South, It was segregated in the daytime, but integrated at night. And that was the mindset where the men were allowed to continue, as they did even in slavery, to creep into the slave quarters, into the beds of the slaves, and commit sexual abuse. It continued. It continued on it was just something that was kind of dismissed now everybody would turn a blind eye if it was a white man committing these offenses but if it was on the other side of the coin and it was a person of color who was engaging in sexual acts or abuse of a white woman, they would immediately be dealt with um in, in in a not live laugh love way. So obviously there was the hypocrisy there. Um and I I tried, I really tried. There were a few ladies especially within the You Belong to Me sex race and Murder in the South documentary, older white ladies from the community where their fathers were the attorneys or, you know, a part of the trial in some capacity or what have you. and Or maybe they just lived in town at the time of the trial and they remembered it. But there was this dismissiveness of the fact that Dr. Adams had committed crimes against Ruby McCollum. And there was one woman in particular who felt like while Dr. Adams might have pushed himself onto Ruby McCollum, she very well might have been privileged to have been approached by this white man of the community who was of equal or better value than she herself. And it was that kind of attitude where initially it kind of like, it kind of, I'm not going to lie, it fucked me up for a second. But then I had to remember that, the reason why these women felt the way that they did about Ruby McCollum and the reason why they were able to sleep at night for the remainders of their lives post this crime in 1952 is because they had to put blame at the feet of someone and they didn't want to think of the potentiality of the men in their lives also creeping around and integrating at night, so to speak. It hits really close to home, essentially. And you don't want to think that your husband, brother, cousin, you know, anybody that you're related to would do that her that mindset so she had to be a seductress she had to want it there had to be some gain in it for her she knew her worth so she knew what he was worth and knew that he was an upgrade that kind of thinking which is preposterous um and these are the same people who will steadfastly tell you that this was a consensual relationship between Dr. Adams and Ruby McCollum, Vices what it really was, which was flat out rape, sexual abuse, and uh manipulation by means of administering heroin and cocaine intravenously without her knowledge of what it was and full-on consent this man broke her body he broke her spirit he took money from her he ate her food sat in front of her husband while she was pregnant with their child he essentially dared Sam to say anything he had these people, you know, right where he wanted them, you know, and he was untouchable. Uh, another thing was, was this murder versus self-defense. Four shots is excessive, but I also believe that she was not necessarily in a complete clear state of mind when she drove over there and killed him however at the same time you know Sam had her back up against a wall and Dr. Adams had her back up against a wall Knowing that he would perform an abortion for Sam's mistress and then send the bill to the home where she was going to see it after telling her he would not perform an abortion on her for their child so that she could avoid being murdered by her husband. You know, I mean, she killed the shit out of that daughter. If we're being frank and earnest. But at the same time. She killed him in self-defense. It, I think it was both. I think that this would be considered. In today. In today. In today's day and age. I would see this as second degree murder. Manslaughter maybe. Um, Just because of all of the things that led up to her finally snapping and committing this offense. Whew. Okay, guys. So, yeah, that's that's the story. It's interesting that while this was happening in Florida, we had Anjette Lyles in Georgia going through similar circumstances and at the same exact time, as far as being a wealthy woman who was standing trial for murder, uh, facing the electric chair and then having that reduced down to being placed into a mental hospital, um, the only upside is Ruby was fortunate enough to be released in 1974. She, I did read and hear in the documentary that she was able to, you know, have some interaction with grandchildren, great-grandchildren before her death, as well as her children. I do know that... Uh, Kay and Sonia, unfortunately, died in 1978 and 1979, I believe. Um, But as well as Sam Jr. lived in the family home until, I think until he died, essentially. Um, And it was dilapidated and falling apart. By the time of the filming of You Belong to Me, Sex, Race, and Murder in the South, he I will say this, when Ruby got out, she didn't really want to make any statements. She said that she couldn't remember anything from that time. And because of all of that Thorazine and electroshock therapy, as well as the trauma, it they said that she suffered from a rare disease that caused her to block all of that out. Um, And her son, Sam Jr. said that he just wanted to leave everything where it was in the past and did not want to comment at the time on that ugly part of his family's history. So, hey, before I go... I am just going to let y'all know that episode 50, which is going to be recorded within the next couple of weeks here, is going to be super special. Not just because it's our 50th episode, but because I am actually going to be interviewing a guest for said episode. And um, it's going to be a super very special what had happened episode that I hope you tell others to tune into the more the better. If you are a lawyer or you know a lawyer, have them tune in to this particular episode, episode 50, which is coming up. If you are a paralegal, if you know anybody in the legal system, please have them tune in this is going to be very intense and very special so that's your teaser and this is your beautiful outro music